Welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And lo, the summoning ritual has once again been successful, and we are joined by Mr. Mike Mason, creative director for Call of Cthulhu for Chaosium. So, uh, Mike, welcome. Ear Yogg-Sothoth. Ear Yogg-Sothoth. Oh, no, it's not worked. It's you lot again. Yeah, afraid <laughs> Hello. So. Hello. Hello, Mike. And your octopus. Yes, yes, you've met Melvin the octopus. For listeners, behind Mike's head, there is an octopus on the wall. Well, to be fair, in the camera shot that we've got at the moment, there's an octopus's arse. It's basically mooning Mike at the moment. That's his head, isn't it? Not the back of his head. Yeah. Such niceties are a bit vague with octopodes. I think you're body shaming the octopus. Anyway, (laughs) moving on, this episode we're debating our choices for the best pieces of Lovecraftian media outside of like written fiction. So the best Lovecraftian media ever made. So films, songs, I don't know what else there is. Comics. Films and songs. Comics. I'm going to talk about a comic. Jokes old and new. Yes, exactly. But we should say Happy New Year for it is 2021. 2020 is over. Yeah, it only took 10 years to get there. (laughs) Yeah, but we were having a little discussion just before we started recording, and I think as much as we all hated 2020, I think it's a bit optimistic to say that 2021 is going to be any less shit. Well, thanks for that, Scott. Yeah, it's all shit. It's always shit. Everything is shit, Paul. (laughs) And that's the end of today's news. No. As Talk Talk always say, life's what you make it. Do they? The single. Talk Talk did a single. Yeah. Yeah. What you make it. But on the plus side, we do have one bit of good news, which is next episode is going to be our big 200th episode special. Yes, indeed. And we're going to be answering questions from the listeners. But don't send in questions because we've already recorded it. But you can send in more questions and we may well answer them at a future date. Like with a three and then two zeros at the end of it, yeah? Maybe. And we'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that a weekend with good friends is coming up really rather soon. This is the online gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners. It takes place on the Good Friends of Jackson Elias Discord server, and I'll put links in the show notes that explain how you can get involved. The cutoff, if you want to offer a game, is really quite soon. It's the 6th of January. But don't despair if you miss that. There will be plenty of opportunity to offer pickup games up to and throughout the convention itself. The convention takes place on the weekend starting the 14th of January and runs for a few days. It's difficult to say exactly how many days because it encompasses all time zones. And depending on where you are, it finishes either on the 17th or the 18th. It would be lovely to see some of you there. And Mike, as we have the pleasure of your company... What secret plans do you have for 2021? Well, I'm almost shocked that you haven't mentioned this already, but 2021 is the 40th anniversary of Call of Cthulhu, the game. Of course. Come 31st of October 2021, it will be more or less exactly 40 years since the game was released. So it's our big 40th anniversary year in that sense, but technically it doesn't really start till October. But we have a number of 
well, dare I say, wonders arranged as we draw towards the close of 2021 and a few early things as well that may crop up. But basically, get yourselves in gear for uh, around October time for some anniversary celebrations. Ooh. Yeah, are there any details you can let slip at this stage or are they all dark secrets right now? They're all dark secrets, Scott, clearly, but there will be things afoot is what I'm going to tell you at this point, as it's only January, and I just want you to build, just like a push roll, you've got to build the anticipation Mm. and and build the tension. You've now got 10 months to do that. Okay, it's all good. (laughs) All right, looking forward to that. I shall start my anticipation glands (laughs) and let them stew. And on with our main topic, top three Mythos Media. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we thought it'd be interesting to talk about what our favourite items of Lovecraftian media are. And this is basically anything that's not a story. So, yes, films, television programmes, comics, songs, musicals, whatever. So uh, let's go round in turn and I think start off by talking about the things that we wanted to discuss but weren't quite our top choices. Well, I had to think about this, and originally I wanted to start off by thinking of films or episodes of TV series that I'd seen that weren't direct adaptations of Lovecraft but were more inspired and had similar themes and that, that sort of thing. The first one for my choice i put at the back because it's definitely the more humorous of the bunch and it's definitely not by any means serious whatsoever but it's a bloody good laugh and that's from season two episode eight of night gallery professor peabody's last lecture oh yes because boy is that so much fun (laughs) a very short skit in night gallery for those that don't know the series, basically it's kind of Twilight Zone 2.0 but with a framing mechanism of Rod Serling introduces a painting and then goes into the story behind it. And essentially it is a, a lecturer ridiculing the mythos gods and getting his comeuppance. But I guess what made this special was the fact that this was before the great Lovecraft boom that came in the wake of Call of Cthulhu. So this was in the 1970s when I guess most of the viewers wouldn't have had any idea who Lovecraft was, who Cthulhu was, and uh, who all these strange things that they were name-checking were. So it was actually quite a, Mm. a bold bit of television in that respect. I would dispute it being a bold thing, Scott, because you'll find in the same Night Gallery series, they ad- adapted Clark Ashton Smith's Return as a Sorcerer. If you look at all those kind of anthology series, a lot of them did draw upon the writers who started out in the Lovecraftian circle, in a way. You know, you've got Richard Matheson, Robert Block, and so forth, and many others, Clark Ashton Smith, and so on. They were all this group of writers, and they were all drawing from a lot of their earlier work or turning their hand to TV kind of teleplays. So there was a, this kind of bulk of writers that kind of came through. If Lovecraft had been alive, I guess he would have been in the same bag in a way but certainly in terms of a nod to Lovecraftian stuff it's certainly unique in that way you're absolutely right and particularly in terms of the uh the treatment it gets the fact that it is highly comic and that you know it's a, it's a big joke at the end kind of thing mm. is certainly kind of groundbreaking really in, in that sense it must have been great to have watched that when it came out and have been a fan of like Lovecraft because mm. like you say 
it was before the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It was certainly before I became aware of like Lovecraft at all. But if you were versed in Lovecraft and those things, to actually sort of be sat there like on a Saturday night or whenever it was broadcast, and you see that stuff, and you're like, I know what this is. <laughs> Whereas most people, it was a lot of people would just go over their heads. There's also a nice extra level of detail there that it's not just Peabody referencing the gods on his green blackboard, but also that the members of his audience or his class are named after various mythos authors. Like you have Block, Durleth, which gets maligned a few times by, oh, sorry, I said that word again, didn't I, Mr. Durleth? Hasta! <laughs> and Shabnigarathna dancing Cthulhu. There's just lots of wonderful little riffs and word plays and yeah, in-jokes throughout the whole thing. Hmm. And of course, Night Gallery did adapt a couple of Lovecraft stories, Cool Air and Pigman's Model. And I think actually their adaptation of Cool Air was the first exposure I had to Lovecraft in any form as a kid when I watched that series. Oh gosh, I must have been like 10 or 11 years old. And Mike, what's your uh, your first runner-up or second runner-up? I forgot it was kind of Lovecraftian media. And in my head, it become Lovecraftian films. So I'd kind of pick three films Sure. It's very hard to pull out one or two, but I guess The Corridor. Oh, yeah. I guess I tried to identify ones that I've enjoyed, but aren't necessarily really well known, I guess, to give them a bit of a highlight. So The Corridor is a 2010 film directed by Evan Kelly. I think it's a Canadian film. I can't really give a lot away because it will give a lot away, but basically five friends spend a weekend in a cabin in the woods catching up on old times and basically opening interdimensional portals. It's quite downbeat. A lot is unexplained. It's not a big budget film. It's not a highly successful film in terms it's got its weaknesses, but it's very engaging and it leaves you thinking and it makes you think of ideas, which is often what a good film will do, even if it's not a brilliant film in and of, of itself. It does feel very much like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Yep. And some great Winter Wonderland shots. It's one of those films it kind of just creeps up on you. It's not particularly horrific or anything like that, but it is weird. It definitely hits the yep. weirdness meter and is well worth a watch. Yeah. Mm, agreed. Scott, do you want to go next? For my second runner-up, I was going to go for a song. And the song in particular, which probably isn't going to be a surprise to anyone who knows my musical tastes, is Lovecraft in Brooklyn by the Mountain Goats, which, apart from being, I think, a fairly good song musically, I mean, it's unusual for a Mountain Goats song in that it is a rock song, or at least, you know, a form of rock song. And most of their stuff is a bit gentler or weirder than that musically. But this is a fairly straightforward rock number. Lyrically... It draws upon, as the title suggests, Lovecraft's experiences of living in Brooklyn to talk about someone in the modern day who's experiencing general alienation and paranoia and contrasting the two. And yeah, I think it's a really quite creepy song. It draws in a lot of Lovecraftian imagery, including some stuff from The Whisper in Darkness. It also is the song that got me into the Mountain Goats in the first place. I mean, this was off their 2008 album, Heretic Pride. The song was recommended to me by my, my old friend Ted Blanchard, who I know listens to the podcast. So thank you, Ted. And since then, the Mountain Goats have become something of an obsession of mine. So, yeah, yeah, an amazing song. Yeah, it's great. I did go down quite a long route of trying to see if we could get a license to use it as our title music, but that never... Uh... Well, it kind of, it did get somewhere, but where it got to had some big numbers, very big numbers, yeah. which were well out of our reach. And also, I would say if I had a band, 
I would love to do a cover version and call it Lovecraft in Bletchley. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the true horror. Oh, God. I, yeah, I think Lovecraftian horror would just be swamped by the quotidian horror of living in Bletchley. <laughs> it's, yeah. Who needs cosmic horror when you just have, well, Bletchley? And bordering on the Lakes Estate. <laughs> and weirdly, Bletchley Park as well. The, yeah. Just for listeners, it's the same place. The World War II code cracking station. That is somewhat out of place in the rest of Bletchley. I can't possibly tell you my Bletchley Park story <laughs> in the recorded fashion, but privately... Over a beer, I'll tell you one day. Is that just a way to get lots of people to buy you beers, Mike? No, it's, I, have, I have a great <laughs> Bletchley Park story. Actually, the first time I went to Bletchley Park was with my father many years back when he came down and visited me in Milton Keynes. And he was actually stationed in Bletchley Park, uh, not during the war itself, but just afterwards, because he trained as a radio operator during his national service when he was with the Air Force. And he did his, his training in Bletchley Park. And it was really wonderful just wandering around with him and having him pointing out all the bits that he remembered. Oh, wow. Yeah. So would that have been in the 50s? Late 40s, early 50s. I th- yeah. I think it would have been probably about 1948, 49. Uh, when he did his national service, he was sent over to Germany and he was actually working for the Air Force at the time of the Berlin Airlift. So that was a bit of history. Huh. So what's your choice then, Paul, for your second runner-up? So I'm going to go for Return to Innsmouth. Mm. All three of my choices reference Lovecraft and are strongly tied into Lovecraft. And Return to Innsmouth is a film from 1999 made by Aaron Vanek, who wrote the screenplay and directed it. It's a relatively low-budget, black-and-white film. I remember, I don't know whether it was through the unspeakable oath. I guess it was on some websites in the late 90s. Back then, you had to, like, order the VHS tape from America. Just getting these parcels from America was a a very exciting thing back then. And I can remember getting that and and one or two others. But that one really stood out to me. So it kind of Mm. retells the story of Shadow of Rinsmouth with Robert Olmsted going back to his family uh, haunts. Vanek went on to do The Yellow Sign with John Tynes a few years later. But I think I prefer this one. But for whatever reason, and if Aaron's listening... I would urge him to try and do a a transfer of this, Mm. but it's not available on any media that I can find. But I do still have the VHS tape. I haven't got a VHS player, but I believe you have, Matt. Oh, yes. I'm going to see if we can meet up and try and do a transfer of it so I can actually watch it again. It was just very atmospheric and it just seemed to, I don't know, capture something of the story to me that I hadn't really seen done otherwise. And there were some great extras with some of the actors because it's fairly low budget. You know, you've got an actor who's just, I guess, people that Aaron knew that you were hired on for the film, but they've got to put on the prosthetics and then get into like a, a I don't know if it was a lake or a, a swamp or whatever, <laughs> just in the water and <laughs> waiting for him to shout, you know, action. And then they got to come out, it's just bloody freezing. <laughs> and, you know, they haven't got all the stuff that you'd have on a big budget movie. So these guys went through some pain to create this film, I think. So I got a copy of the film soon after it came out on VHS like you Mm. but I got one by contacting Aaron because Gen Con was coming up I arranged to do a showing at Gen Con late on the Saturday night oh I got a room and we did a showing of the film you know about half hour long I guess isn't it yeah and uh, did a showing at Gen Con I don't know if you were there or not I can't remember I think that was probably before I started coming then because this film came out in 99 and I don't think I started coming to cons till about 
about then, but I don't think I knew about Gen Con. I didn't know it was a thing. Well, certainly that it was still going like until like about 2000, I guess. 2000 was probably my first one. So, or maybe 2001. So I think I probably didn't. And then even then I just went up for a day trip, I think. Right. And I didn't know you then. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. We were both watching the same film, but... Mm. Uh, yeah. Just to be clear, then, when you're talking about Gen Con there, you're talking about the UK Gen Con. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So this yeah. was trying to uh, propagate the tentacles of Aaron's film across the water, basically. I don't know if Aaron's done much in the way of film work in recent years. I know he did a sort of weird play in Los Angeles last year or year before that sounded very cool. And I was lucky enough to game with him recently because he's been running the Two-Headed Serpent. What he's been doing is getting people he knows, usually actors, to come on and play NPCs because they've been playing via Zoom because of the quarantine. And so he's just taking this as an opportunity. So as they're getting towards the climax in Calcutta, he asked me to come on and play Joshua Meadham, which was marvellous fun. Actually, I just looked him up on IMDb. And I just realised that maybe I chose the wrong one. He also did Call of Tutu, oh. uh, which is a short, you can see it on YouTube, Call of Tutu. Oh, yeah. Do look it up. It's just this old guy in, a, in an old people's home who's apparently suffering from dementia, perhaps. And he's talking about, I think he's talking to his cat or something. Yeah. It makes it sound like Tutu is his cat, I think. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the best short films I've ever seen. It is. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm. So actually, I'm going to change and say Call of Tutu. There, <laughs> bang, changed. Since we recorded this episode, I've been in touch with Aaron Vanek, and there is news. For a start, The Outsider, the first film that he made, is going to be re-released as part of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival Classic series. And then... Even more excitingly, Return to Innsmouth, along with a few other films, including The Yellow Sign, are going to be collected together onto one DVD with a whole bunch of extras. This project is going to be reliant on a Kickstarter campaign, so when that goes live, we'll give you all the details, because obviously we really want to see this happen. Okay, first runner-up. Matt, what have you picked for your first runner-up? I was going to go with, as I said, one that wasn't a direct adaptation, mainly because I know it would push some of Scott's buttons because I know he loves the film The Void so much. But then I thought, actually, I, I tried to watch it again a couple of days back and ended up not really getting much of a chance to go through it and then thought, hang on a minute. Wait a minute, let me jump in. Can I just jump in here and say, God damn it, I watched that last <laughs> night because I thought you were going to talk about it. <laughs> and I'm going to say I quite enjoyed it. And I'm going to say you're wrong. No, it's, it's a good film. Hang on, hang on. So, Scott, you love The Void, but you didn't like The Colour Out of Space. I thought The Void was awful. Oh, that's fine. Okay. You don't like either of them. That's fine. That's fine. No, I get it no, now. No, no. I, I couldn't believe I thought... that you liked one and not the other. That just made no sense to oh, me. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. The Void was just superficial nonsense. It was someone who had watched a few John Carpenter films, thought they were going to try to replicate the atmosphere of them, and forgot to write a fucking script. It's just a mess. You know what? I'm not being... Well, I am being provocative, but I'm not saying this to have a go. But when I was watching it, it occurred to me, Scott, 
this film is like playing in one of your scenarios. No, it's fucking not. There's lots of objectionable NPCs. <laughs> There's nobody you can get on with. They struggle to get on together, but every NPC is like against them. And yep. um, there's lots of like things that aren't really explained, which you like, things mm -hmm. without explanation. And the ending is kind of... It ends. Well, it's not really a happy ending. It ends, the end is pretty bleak. Yeah, just watching it, I thought, this is like one of your scenarios, ironically. You're dead to me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Next, you'll be saying you didn't like Underwater either, Scott. Oh, God. Don't make me go back and think about that film again, please, Mike. Please. <laughs> but you like Midsummer. I did like Midsummer. I did like Midsummer. So you like Midsummer, but you dismissed all the other good films as well. Let, 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 let's I bring this back to order. And let, <laughs> I, I, I interrupted you, Matt. So please, pray continue. Instead of that one, because it's it's got some really good visuals. I do quite like it, especially with the John Carpenter vibe, because I love his films. But I thought back to Necronomicon and thought, hang on a minute. There was a great experience we had on Sunday night there as we trudged up Federal Hill and went to an old cinema there that was definitely the scene of a horror film in its own right, I'm thinking, given the way it was falling <laughs> apart. And then that wonderful experience we had there of the Dunwich Horror Picture Show. Any film where you can do a Rocky Horror-style audience participation skit and have Big Nazo dancing around in whatever the hell they were dancing around in, that had to make my list in some fashion. And a live band. Yeah, actually doing the uh, doing the soundtrack. And the fact the film was like a really old, like actual <laughs> yeah. celluloid version of it, which was on its last legs and looked like it was going to burn out or break at any moment. Held together with sticky tape, yeah. Colour tonal changes and uh, crackles. Mm. It was great. Absolutely great. That was beautiful. A beautiful experience. Having seen the Dunwich Horror Picture Show twice now, each time there are similarities because we're watching the same film, but every time it's a new experience. That's what all I can say. <laughs> I think one of the best lines that someone from the audience had to yell out was very close to the beginning of the film, Armitage extends his hand and said, it's always a pleasure to meet a Waitley. And someone in the audience just yells, said no one ever! <laughs> <laughs> one of the weirdest aspects of watching it there for me was I was sitting there as the film went on and sort of thinking, this is really weird. Is someone letting off fireworks in here? There's the, all these strange flashes of light and I don't know how they're doing that. Are they flashing lasers around or doing something like that? And it wasn't until a little while later that I realised I actually had a problem with my retina. and It was just... <laughs> far oh. off random flashes of light as i looked around in the dark i thought it was that acid you dropped <laughs> i wish <laughs> <laughs> and moving on what's your second choice mike i'm going to choose absentia as my second oh, choice yeah. here which is a 2011 film by mike flanagan who also directed the probably more well-known oculus and doctor sleep as well as hush but i've not seen hush so and the Hill House, yes. So this is Absentia, which is set in Glendale, California. I'm not trying to give too much away, but basically there's a woman whose husband has been missing for a number of years. Her sister kind of comes to live with her. She's kind of getting over this loss and is kind of waiting basically for the courts to declare him dead in absentia. And from that point, it just sort of spirals into this kind of nightmare situation that they even say anything other than there's a house they live in a house at the end of the house at the end of the street there's this kind of underpass tunnel mm. weird and bad things and even good things perhaps 
come out of that tunnel at times. And it's this descent into otherworldliness that is strongly kind of connected to, uh, I guess you would call it, you know, potentially things that on the outside that are watching you all the time and can affect you. So that kind of Lovecraftian thing of the, the things between the spaces, quite literally. And to say any more would spoil it. So if you haven't seen it, go and check it out. But uh, it's, again, a really kind of creepy, creepy kind of slow burn and build. One of the many things I like about it, even though this isn't stated explicitly anywhere in the film, is it's one of those bits of Lovecraftian media or one of those Lovecraftian stories that also works as a kind of fairy tale in that it could be seen through certain lenses as being a classic take on certain bits of fairy folklore. Yeah. The really creepy kind. And I love that. And I love that crossover between them. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I remember enjoying the film. Yeah. Have you ever seen it, Matt? No, it's. I've heard of Flanagan's other stuff, but I've not seen much done by him. I mean, I quite enjoyed Hill House, but really didn't like Oculus. So I didn't end up tracking down much of his other stuff after that. I liked Oculus. I thought it was great. Mm, so did I. Mm. And any film in which you've got a scene of someone suffering under a delusion, eating a light bulb, thinking it's an apple, is fine by me. So, Scott, come around to you again. What's your next choice? My second choice is actually a film or a short film. The only film on my list. I can't remember, Mike, did you go to Miskatonicon in Sweden with us back, oh gosh, 15 years ago? No. No, I, did, I couldn't go. No, I, I thought you weren't there. But it's certainly one that Paul, Matt and I saw together many years ago in Sweden, uh, which is Late Bloomer, which is this weird comical short film. I mean, it's only 13 minutes long. It was made in 2004 by someone called Craig McNeil. And it's available on YouTube, so I'll link to it from the show notes. And it's basically a rather weird little story about a kid going to a sex ed class that is being taught by Miss Lovecraft, who teaches them the dark and unspeakable secrets of what lies within every boy and girl in the class, and how he sees it through the lens of Lovecraftian horror, and this all turns into something unspeakable. That film just made me laugh so much when I saw it, and I watched it again the other day, and it amused me as much as it ever did. It really stands up. It's that Shubnagarath boogie on the blackboard that does it for me. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the, the animation part there. <laughs> it really stands up, Scott. Thank you for that. Oh, <laughs> <brum>. <laughs> I think the monologue over it really brings it to life. It's, mm -hmm. It starts off quite balanced and sensible. And then the whoever's doing the monologue just does such a great job of voicing it. They're getting crazier and crazier and like the, the voice in the boy's head. Yeah, it's a great piece of work. Yes, a descent into madness. Mm. It's very good. It's very good. I'm just hoping that somebody is going to talk about, don't tell me, but I'm just hoping somebody is going to talk about the mouth of madness. In the Mouth of Madness, because last night I watched like three of these things in preparation. But yeah, one of the ones that I watched was this one that I'm about to talk about. This is a, another film or TV show, but a one-off from 1998, a Canadian production called Out of Mind. Oh, yes. Directed by Raymond St. St. Jean, I'm not sure, and stars Christopher Herdahl as H.P. Lovecraft. It opens up with a black and white image of... Lovecraft sat at his desk and the person playing Lovecraft it'd be hard to find somebody who looks more like him mm. 
with this kind of protruding jaw and kind of fairly gaunt features and it's pro- produced like it's a period recording so it's all kind of crackly and, and everything and it's Lovecraft's voice very much I think it's extracted from his letters and his writings and he talks about his work and his processes a bit then it cuts to well contemporary times like modern day in the late 90s and we see a young man and he receives a box from a, a solicitor which has been willed to him and I think it was willed to him before he was even born to be given to him on his 21st birthday by Professor Angel and our protagonist is named Randolph Carter it takes a lot of names from uh, Lovecraft's work and during this hour it's kind of interspersed with bits of Lovecraft period recordings of Lovecraft in black and white sat at his desk sort of talking about his work and this color modern day production and I will say of the kind of short very Lovecraftian films this is very high production values this is professional production and we get bits of lovecraft influence stories we very much get the herbert west style character we get the last statement of randall carter with him going down into the earth we get various things woven in and then we get the fact that you know the, the professor angel the deceased is trying to sort of possess his nephew through what he's left him is this book the necronomicon and he takes this to armitage you know this old guy in a who gets eaten horribly but then the top scene for me is it cuts back to lovecraft and lovecraft's just taking a walk through the woods but now it's in color and he's just sort of walking along and trying to you know say cthulhu and and trying out different sounds Mm. and then he meets randolph carter you know from our modern day and the two of them just they figure this must be a dream and they just walk along and have this chat together and it's just such a beautiful scene of mm-hmm. you know lovecraft on one of his walks he loved to go out you know he wasn't as many people seem to portray him like a shut-in i was reading recently some of his um letters and so on he talks very much about how he liked to go out into the countryside or go for long walks and sit and read or write outside of his house he'd very much do that and this film really captures that feeling of being able to talk to somebody who was long deceased in a dream and wondering why their face is on your shirt. Yes, yes, you have my face <laughs> upon your shirt. Yeah, I love that film. It's like nothing else I've ever seen. And like you say, I mean, Christopher Heidel's performance as Lovecraft. I mean, I've seen Lovecraft portrayed in all sorts of media, often very badly. And that to me is the one that absolutely nails him. And of course, Lovecraft did do a recording of his own voice on... Um I don't know, wax cylinder or shellac or whatever. But he didn't like it the way it sounded and he <laughs> he destroyed it, which is kind of sad. It'd be nice to be able to hear his voice. And I will mm. say also this film, Out of Mind, is all there on YouTube. So you can watch it. Okay. Oh, again, I'll link to it from the show notes. So should we come round for our top choices? So Matt... What is the thing that you're going to recommend to us as the best Lovecraftian media of all time? Well, the one I enjoy the most, certainly. And I foreshadowed it a little bit by saying that I very much like the films of John Carpenter. And I won't disappoint you for having watched it last night. I, lo- I love In the Mouth of Madness. I think it's a fantastic film. <laughs> Even to the point where I watched this a long, long time before I was exposed to, to Lovecraft directly. And it wasn't until we did our episodes on Haunter of the Dark that I went, hang on a minute, they quote that in In the Mouth of Madness, saying this thing reads like a guidebook. (laughs) 
I think it's an amazing film. It owes a lot more to the likes of Land of Laughs than probably Lovecraft, but it's just a fantastic yeah. story. It's full of really creepy imagery. <laughs> it has those nice tongue-in-cheek little embedded references. It picks on Stephen King. It's just great in all respects. Sorry, when you say it owes a lot to Land of Laughs, what do you mean is it's plagiarised, right? Well, pretty much, yeah. The author said that, pretty much, didn't they, in an, in an interview? Well, not in an interview. The screenwriter was Michael DeLuca, who later went on to become a bigwig at New Line Cinema and DreamWorks. But some time back, Jonathan Carroll apparently got to meet him, and in a conversation with him that Carroll posted about online, basically said, uh, just to be clear, you did lift the plot of In the Bath of Madness from my novel The Land of Laughs, and DeLuca did cop to that. I wouldn't say the whole plot, but definitely a large chunk of it. I'd say The Land of Laughs is much creepier because it's not Lovecraftian at all. The author at the centre of it is actually a children's author, so it's got that theme of corrupted innocence, and it's generally much weirder. and It's a, a really unsettling novel, and none of that subtlety is there in, in The Mouth of Madness. It, it's a sledgehammer of a film, and I, mean, I, I don't think it's a terrible film, but I don't think it's a great one either. I don't think it's even the best Lovecraftian film that John Carpenter made. Uh, that clearly is Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I was just about to say the same thing, Scott. I, I like In the Mouth of Madness. And in fact, I watched it last night because I just thought, well, I'd not seen it for about 10 years and I've forgotten about it. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed it. it. I think it suffers. I don't know. I think they kind of do everything wrong. They make a film about writing mm. and then don't really talk about the writing or the writer. And you just kind yeah. of think of all the things they could have done that would have made it much more successful. They don't. It kind of fails for me. And as a kind of the end point to Carpenter's disaster or end of the world trilogy, you know, The Thing, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, I think the two other two films are far stronger. I think definitely if you want to see a Call of Cthulhu group of investigators in a film, watch prince of darkness because that is one and it's great i love prince of darkness it's my one of my favorite films i agree but of course the thing is just awesomeness on a piece of bread <laughs> it's possibly one of the top films ever made in terms of just getting everything right <laughs> no i love all three of them but it's just personal taste and yeah but no, so I love Prince of Darkness, but I wouldn't have necessarily pegged it as Lovecraftian. I definitely straight out horror, and it has some absolutely fantastic imagery, like the whole stuff with the mirror mm. and being pulled into this or as liquid other dimension is just haunting. But equally, I find those kind of images in 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 the mouth of madness as well. The guy tearing the door through himself, guy reoccurring. Do you read Sutter Kane? having this wonderful puzzle put together by the covers of his books. It all just really appeals to me. I guess my problem with In the Math of Madness, and like I say, I mean, I don't hate it. I just think it's a badly flawed film. My problem with it is similar to my problem with The Void in that I think it isn't very cohesive. It feels like a series of set pieces that someone wanted to do and they came up with a way of stringing them together but it doesn't feel like a story. Not to me. No, at least not a satisfying one. It definitely has different acts, yeah. You can definitely see there's a kind of three-act structure there, plus a framing device over the top of it. Well, I watched it last night, and I've got to say, I don't think I'd actually seen it before. I was convinced I had, and then I, I started watching it. And mm. I was like, oh, this is quite good. And then I was like, actually... I thought this was a different film. I thought it was one I'd seen. It, yeah, it's a bit dated now, but it was very enjoyable. I will say another film that I watched during the October movie challenge, 
well, a film I rewatched was Children of the Corn based on the Stephen King story. Oh, yeah. And this film, I thought, borrowed quite a bit from that. There's that scene when, what's his name, Neil, the actor? Sam Neil. Sam Neil. And the colleague from the publishing company, they're driving along past a field of dried corn. Mm. And then they end up in that town. There's all this weirdness with the children and everything. It seemed to take quite a lot from Children of the Corn. And yeah, you know, I can kind of see the quite a strong Lovecraftian link to it. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. It's really funny you should mention the cornfield in, in the Mouth of Madness. Because, I, again, yeah, I was watching it last night. And they have the scene where they're driving down the road past the cornfield. Mm. And then the car disappears into distance. And it lingers on the cornfield. And any yeah. second you're waiting for some sort of, like, horrible hand <laughs> to come out through the corn. But, of course, it never happens. But it's just kind of... Yeah, nothing. It, just, it really lingers <laughs> on it. It really like, makes you yeah. wait for something to happen. And it doesn't. It's bizarre, but it, it's kind of cool. Maybe John Carpenter just fancies some corn on the cob and got carried away. Yeah. <laughs> the corn is terror. Yeah, I keep meaning to go back and watch Children of the Corn again at some stage because I saw it when it came out, which must be, what, 1983, 84, something like that. And I remember absolutely hating it at the time. I thought it was a terrible film. But I've seen so many people speak kindly of it since then that I, I keep thinking I should give it another try and see if my tastes have changed since then. Okay, so coming around to you, Mike. What is your top choice of Mythos Media? Now that we've opened it out into media, I can go with this as my top choice. I present to you the oeuvre of the darkest of the hillside thickets. Oh, yes. Oh. Which is a Canadian rock band from um, Chilliwack, British Columbia, somewhere I've never been. But I have had a long Love Affair with the Darkest of Hillside Thickets albums, even though I've never seen them live, mm. but would love to do so. They have produced a number of albums. Some of them have done artwork, and Torian Atkinson's artwork has been in old Call of Cthulhu books, Delta Green books, and so on and so forth. Mm. So they've got kind of a link. They even did their own role-playing game at one time called Spaceship Zero, which tied into the album they did called Spaceship Zero, and is well mm. worth checking out. It's a great fun. It's oh, yeah. uh, basically deep ones in kind of bubble glass space helmets in space and a kind of a Star Trek vibe kind of thing going on. It's crazy and really good. But what can I say? They dress up in mythos costumes, play rock music and sing great songs like Bury Your Way to My Heart or Yig Snake Daddy or Shoggoth's Away or, or my personal favourite Going Down to Dunwich. You can listen to their stuff on Bandcamp and you can buy their albums and you should at least go and do something like that. They're great. Yeah, Cthulhu Strikes Back is my favourite album of theirs. Well, they did a concept album as well, which was The Shadow Out of Tim, which was like one whole story just told through multiple songs, which I adore. I'm not generally much of a fan of rock. I don't listen to very much of it. And that put me off listening to Darkest of the Hillside Thickets for some time. But a few years back, I just thought, oh, I've got to give it a try. And yeah, they are one of the few rock bands that I find I can listen to and enjoy. That's pretty much all I listen to is rock. Yes. As any right-minded person does, Matt. I was once asked to describe what their music was like. I actually called it surf punk. It's got a very 90s sound, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I love them. Going Down to Dunwich, yeah, that's a great track. It always makes me think of like the South Park theme tune, Going Down to South Park. You know, if you could have some mashup of South Park and Thickets, where like the little characters rather than Kyle and so on, you've got, I don't know, Waitley and <laughs> Lovecraftian characters. I'd watch that cartoon. They also have a great way of incorporating audio snippets from other Lovecraftian mm. media. There's at least a couple of songs I can think of where they take quite long chunks out of the Dunwich Horror. 
the uh, 1970 Dean Stockwell one. Yeah. Cthulhu Dreams has quite a long passage. Going down to Dunwich takes stuff from it as well. And and there's a whole raft of stuff that they mine. And I keep meaning to look up thinking, where, where have I heard this thing before using the scripts online of episodes? I think you think Tintin was one that they took stuff from as well, trying to track down where all these little snippets come from. Mm. They've kind of made some videos you can watch on YouTube and particularly for Spaceship Zero and things like that. Yeah, they are a lot of fun. If you listen closely, you will name check a lot of things if you're into Mm. Call of Cthulhu or Lovecraft and they're just good fun. Okay, and Scott, what's your nomination? For my top choice, I'm going to go for a comic, which is Providence, written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Jason Burrows. This is a comic series that came out between 2015 and 2017. Twelve issues, and they've been collected together in various forms. There's new collections, I think, that have just been kick-started in both hardcover and softcover. The collections are fairly big because each of these 12 issues is fairly sizable. Because, much like with Moore's Watchmen, this is a mix of comics and text. So the basic premise is that it takes place or starts off in 1919 and it follows this guy called Robert Black who is a journalist. He's working for the Herald newspaper in New York in a world that is a bit like ours or at least a lot like ours but has certain differences so for example it does have the suicide booths out of robert w chambers's the repair of reputations but at the same time chambers's the king and yellow is actually a thing in that world as well and they make comments about how you know it sort of foresaw the popularity of the booths but what happens is blake sort of learns a little bit about this, not quite conspiracy, but this network of strange things that are going on across New England, all these disparate, weird groups and people that all seem to tie back into a magical order, a secret society. I don't know what you'd want to call it, but an organisation called the Stella Sapienti, which translates as Starry Wisdom. And he goes off and investigates and his idea is to put together a book and a big part of each issue is the notes he makes this commonplace book that he keeps putting together all these notes and the the documents that he finds as well and the things and people he encounters are very much the things that we see in lovecraft but not quite and so he sort of visits all these real towns in New England that were the inspiration for the towns like Arkham and Dunwich and Kingsport and so on, and encounters these people who have got sort of similar names and backgrounds to people like Obed Marsh and Wizard Waitley and Herbert West and, and so on, but they aren't those characters. And he's sort of compiling all this information to this book, trying to find out what this magical order is all about. And then at some point, through this character he meets who is very much Randolph Carter, he is introduced to this young writer from Providence called Howard Phillips Lovecraft, and the two become friends. Well, at least they become friends until Blake, who is both gay and Jewish, starts having a few problems with Lovecraft's attitudes. But Lovecraft then sort of starts borrowing lots of stuff from Blake. 
what makes this special is the fact that it's sort of this metafictional thing that it's it's a bit like Moore's From Hell in that it's about fiction as magical ritual. It's about changing reality mimetically. And as the story goes on, it sort of jumps forward into our timeline, or at least into our day, and sort of shows the the spreading of the mythos and how this sort of operates as a magical working, changing our perceptions of reality. And as a piece of work, it's absolutely fucking audacious. I mean, I, I was in awe of what he did with that. I, the detail, the Lovecraft scholarship in there, just the ideas and the sort of blending of reality and dream and the, the mimetic power of fiction. Yeah, it's, it's like nothing else I've ever read and it just blew me away. Uh, they recently did a Kickstarter for the collected version of Providence, doing it in one big book. I would mm. have liked to have got it, but I haven't got a second mortgage to pay for the postage costs on it. Yeah, it's got to be the size of a cinder block, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. So hopefully I might find a copy over here at some point. So what's it available as now, then? I think you can get it as individual releases, but there's a few collections as well. Right. They split it up basically into three acts or three volumes, and it's been published as, I think, softcover and hardcover in those forms. There's the individual comics, so you can get them as I did as, as digital downloads. So it's available in all sorts of different formats. Is that the one that needs a big trigger warning as well, though? Yes, it does. This is something that has come up with discussions of more on our Discord server many times, which is his use of rape as a plot device is repellent to many people. And that was a big part of why a lot of people didn't like Neonomicon, because there was a fairly protracted and horrible rape scene in that. Providence is no different in that respect. I mean, it's nasty in places, but you know, not triggering in that respect. But there is, I think it's in issue seven, there is a fairly nasty and weird rape scene in there that is going to make a lot of people very uncomfortable. Okay, then, Paul, how about you? What's your choice for your top piece of mythos media well i feel we've been a bit remiss i thought there was something you were going to mention scott but you had several other things on your list when we uh, shared our ideas mm. so i'm just going to give a quick shout out to the hplhs who i can't believe oh, yes. we haven't like mentioned it's not yeah. going to be my choice because that wasn't the one that i chose but i mean to leave out shoggoth on the roof yeah. the collection of songs that form that musical that's a masterpiece and also it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen <laughs> the the track from a very scary solstice their collection of christmas themed carols is also remiss of us with a shoggoth on the roof i think you're simplifying things a bit there and it's not just a collection of songs i mean they went to town with this because it's been through two other iterations since then they did a film a fake documentary film about a yeah, production of, of a shoggoth on the roof that starred chris sarandon and was absolutely amazing and then they went whole hog and actually did do it as a musical so this is the music from fiddler on the roof but with with Lovecraftian lyrics and they strung it all together into a story that brought in elements from Herbert West Reanimator, the festival, the Dunwich Horror and others. Testament of Randolph Carter was in there as well. It's a fantastic piece of work. We saw the world premiere of that in Sweden 15 years ago. We did indeed. In Swedish. With a ghoul that stole the show. <laughs> You'll find many treasures and wonders on the HP Lovecraft historical website go there and buy things because they're all really yeah. good whether you like props music or anything else whatever they do is always good you will not be disappointed yeah 
and their podcast voluminous about the letters of H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, everything they do is like they have a very high standard of quality before they'll let anything out of their doors. So if it's got their name on it, you know it's going to be good. Mm. But anyway, the one that I've chosen just dawned on me this morning because there are so many things that we've all watched and seen over the years like that Father Tutu one, it was suddenly when I looked at the IMDb, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I forgot that one. So I fear there might be other things I've forgotten, but this is the one that I'm going to nominate, okay? And maybe I have to pick one of them, but there are three short films between four and six minutes long, produced and released on YouTube in 2016. Pickman's Guest, From Beyond the Beyond, and The Ordeal of Randolph Carter. These are oh, yes. fantastically produced fantastically funny takes on Lovecraft stories by Chris Lackey and Greg Johnson. And it's just amazing to look at them and see the level of production they've got in them and the scripting and the understanding of Lovecraft. Of course, Chris Lackey with Chad Pfeiffer did the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which is still going strong, uh, but has moved on to you know other, other authors now. And then you look at the the take-up of them, and the most any one of those three films has got is 18,000 views. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, that's, that's a lot, but in terms no. of YouTube watches, that is so small, and, and I don't mean that to demean them at all, because no. I'm just shocked that it isn't much, much higher. And I know, you know, talking to Chris, they just didn't get the uptake, so they stopped doing them. If people were watching them more, I think they would have done more of them. But it's just criminal that they aren't better recognised because I just think they're genius. Mm. If I had to pick one, I'd probably go from Beyond the Beyond, which is the uh, Tillinghast Resonator one. And Chris just walking in there and uh, talking <laughs> to Tillinghast and he's like, let's resonate. It's just great. <laughs> the bit for me is from the Pickman's guest one where it's he unveils the last picture and it's oh yeah, this is this is kind of okay. Oh hang on a minute and just turns it ninety degrees and the look on the guy's face is he just goes back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, they're genius. They really are. And of course, if you're a fan of Greg Johnson as well, he does a lot of YouTube skits and so on. So he's done a lot of sketch comedy, which mm. you can find on his YouTube channel. And he's also a regular on the BBC TV programme, The Mash Report. Yeah, I was delighted the first time I watched it and saw him crop up on there. He's a funny man. So those are our nominations. Now, it falls to us as the Supreme Court of Jackson Elias to decide <laughs> which one of these is actually the best one because <laughs> there has been some things come up and i thought oh actually yeah i hadn't thought of that for me i guess it's down to the one i just said father tutu lovecraft in brooklyn and ducks the hillside thickets quite a few of those are kind of musical but yeah mm. you know that's not, not that's an issue but have any of you kind of rethought your your top takes yeah i'm sort of coming back to the idea of shoggers on the roof yeah, I really do love that. The soundtrack album that they did that started the whole thing off, then the film and then the, the musical itself, uh, just so much fun. They work as a musical as well, but yeah, just highly entertaining, very amusing. And I'm kind of regretting not putting that in as one of my choices now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love Shuggle from the Roof. I have very fond memories of the production we went to see in Sweden. Also, you're kind of regretting that I chose to try to steer away from direct adaptations because otherwise I would have put the HPLHS Call of Cthulhu silent film mm. up there as well. 
Mm. But yeah, no, Shuggoth on the Roof has to have a place up there. How about you, Mike? I love uh, Shuggoth on the Roof because it's got uh, for a deep one in it. But Ascarius Solstice is perhaps my favourite one because it has it's beginning to look a lot like Fishmen, which having to say, um, yes. I was had the radio on yesterday and it started playing Michael Bublé singing. It's beginning to look like Christmas, and my instant thought as I heard the first note that it was actually you know the proper version, which is the Fishman version, thinking that it was on the radio, like I've gone mad or something. <laughs> Am I right in remembering, Paul, that you said that your kids at some stage came across the original version of Fiddler on the Roof and were kind of really shocked to find out that it wasn't all about Lovecraftian horrors? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in our house, we don't watch musicals on the whole there are a few exceptions but um yeah <laughs> also like christmas songs there's a lot of mm. christmas songs that they weren't familiar with there are well-known ones but the version they know is the hp lovecraft versions <laughs> you know on chocolate on the roof because that's what would get played in our house and also mike do you remember singing it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen at a convention uh me you sandy peterson oh, yeah continuum yes yes, yes indeed I think we also did a rendition of Do You Hear the Pipes Cthulhu by Terence Chua as well. I think yes. we did that as well. Yeah, double, yeah. double bill. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't keep Sandy down when he started singing it beginning to look a lot like Fishman. You go, oh, it's my favourite song. And he jumped up and uh, joined in. Yeah. yeah. So it was grand. I remember there was another one as well that was done to the tune of That's Amore. And I was in the audience. I wasn't taking part in it. But I remember it was you two, like you say, Sandy, and there was someone else as well. And you started singing along and, and you all had the simultaneous experience halfway through that you only knew how part of the song went. And then it got to a certain point and you'd all just looked at each other in panic <laughs> as you had no idea where you were going from there. And, and it was just beautiful. Marvellous. It sounds like HPLHS are coming out on top then, really. Yeah. I think it's them and John Carpenter's a thing, you know, just to take the facts as they sound. Things that we didn't actually have in our selections. Come yeah, out of course. Just... Ironically, <laughs> that's yeah. How it, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. In the spirit of good GMing, any good keepers ready to improvise. Exactly. They had things prepared, but then things come up in the game and they incorporate them, and that makes the best game. And this is what makes the best podcast. Absolutely. So uh, the HPLHS and The Thing. The HPLHS for your music and comedy, and your, uh, your John Carpenter for the movies. So basically what we're saying is that the ultimate piece of Lovecraftian media for all of us would be if the HPLHS did a musical version of The Thing. That would be a winner. I think we'd all be buying tickets, Scott. Oh. We would. <laughs> Sean, Andrew, if you're listening to this, get on it at once. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. Well, if we had to pick one thing that was our absolute favourite out of the Lovecraftian community or the Lovecraftian world at large, it would actually be our listeners. And we would like to say thank you 
to each and every one of you. We would like to say thank you to everyone who has ever backed the podcast, and we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Flattery will get you everywhere. Absolutely, I'm shameless. And it's a big thanks going out to Nathan Back. And also a thanks go out to the wonderfully named Cthulhu89. And thank you very much to Joshua Johnson. And thanks to Rokimbo. And also our thanks go out to Francesco Iberite. Now, hopefully I haven't mangled your name there. And of course, if we do mangle any of your names, please get in touch and we'll have another pass at them and try to do better next time. And again, I hope I'm getting this right. Thank you very much to Nicholas Korkidjian. I mean, every episode we mention Cthulhu's name, he's never got in touch to say we're saying it wrong. Well, he's dreaming down there waiting for the day that we do contact him. Well, I think he has many times. I mean, yeah, certainly I suffer from insomnia and bad dreams, and Matt hardly ever sleeps, so he's clearly trying to get in touch with us somehow. And next on our list, a big thanks to Sam Stamps. And thanks also to Daniel Bailey. And thank you very much to Sean Holbrook. And thanks to Wayne Stewart. And thanks go out to the singular named Jared. And thank you very much to Martin Jameson. And thanks to Aztec Ace. And thanks to Mitchell Hodge. And thank you very much to Ryan Loughlin. And thanks to NJ Colton. And thanks also to Joaquin Wern. And hopefully again, I've not butchered your name there. Rather than say it every time before you say any name, why don't you just say at the front at once, we got these names to thank and we're probably going to pronounce some of them wrong. We apologise in advance. But you say it every time for almost every name. <laughs> we do. It's the personal touch. It adds 30 seconds to everything you've done. That would be a good idea. And maybe after 200 shows, we could actually start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sounds like a good round number to do from. We're slow learners is the only, uh, the only explanation. <laughs> but yes, that wraps up episode 199. I'm glad that we thrashed out some interesting nominations and, and we did come up with a well kind of come up with a winner we came up with a couple of winners in the end aren't they all winners that's why we chose them indeed you would argue against the void though yeah but we didn't actually choose the void so uh. why are we still talking about the bloody void <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like to turn that wind up arm on his back you see yeah <laughs> why are we still talking about it because we can't avoid it Oh, oh on that <laughs> terrible joke let's move on well next episode episode 200 so join us friends for uh, the next show when we answer lots of questions but until then it's a good night from me cheerio from me a farewell from me and ta from me hello Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.